Well, good morning, and uh, welcome here to each of you. I want to start this morning uh, by telling a story about a couple um, that lived in Canada um, in around uh, 1920s to 1930s, and their names are John and Edith Hayward. And uh, I looked on the internet, could not even find a picture of these people, but I'd like to tell you about them this morning. So they were a couple, like I said, living in Canada. They had a couple of children. Uh, they were preteens. I don't know what age their children were. And the Great Depression was just uh, kicking off. And they had a friend who uh, went to the YMCA, and I think to work out. And while he was at the YMCA, he met a young student there from India. And I don't know what all exchange happened, but um, befriended him and uh, eventually talked to John and Edith and said, hey, I met this, this guy who's actually living at the YMCA. Would you allow him to move into your house? So they thought about it, and uh, they ended up inviting him in to live with them, and he lived there for three years. So he was from India. He had been raised a, a Sikh. He attended missionary school, but actually hated Christianity. Um, he was given a Bible, and as I understand the story, he tore out the contents of it, but kept the cover. Um, because he wanted, wanted the cover of it. He left India, he was from a well-to-do family, and went to England to study, promised his parents before he left that he would not convert to Christianity while gone, uh, moved to Canada from, to continue his studies. While in Canada, um, he met some believers, and he attended a service, and he just talked about how he was with Christians and God worked in his heart. Um, the family, John and Edith Hayward, that he moved in with, gave him a Bible. He began reading it. Um, and Alvin Miller can probably tell us a lot more about the Indian student than I can. His name is Bakht Shin, uh, Singe. And he went on, um, became a believer, lived with this couple for three years. And they, after they would eat dinner, they would, ha they would read scripture and they would pray. And one of the things their family really stressed is that you should ask God before you do anything. And uh, so he became a believer, and he was very excited, and he got asked to share his testimony. He said yes on the spot, and he came home, and the couple he was living with said, no, you, you really shouldn't have done that. You should have asked God about that first. He actually got so mad at them, um, the story goes, that they didn't talk for a period of two or three weeks. Eventually, they worked it out. Um, he, got, he moved back to India to be a missionary, and one of the things that he felt that God asked him to do was to pray about everything, to not make plans, and to literally to live his ministry um, day by day. And he went on, um, literally touched thousands and millions of people in India that became a believer through his ministry. And he would hold somewhat similar to Billy Graham crusades, and people would come for days and literally live in tent, in a tent. People would donate food. By the time he passed away in, I think it was 2000, they estimated somewhere around six to 10,000 churches had had come out into India and Sri Lanka, even into the U.S. and Australia um, from, from his ministry there. So that is the story, but I would like to just read a couple paragraphs out of a book called The Invested Life, um, Making Disciples of All Nations One Person at a Time, um, just to tell you a little bit more about the background of what happened. And they say, now here's the rest of the story. Edith Hayward's dream in life was to go to India as a missionary, but the Lord had other plans for her. She married John, had children, and ministered faithfully to those in her community in Winnipeg, Canada. The Lord never gave her the opportunity to go to the country that she longed to reach for Christ. 
Yet by opening her home to an unknown, lonely, international student and working with her husband to invest in that student's spiritual growth, she helped prepare a man who would go on to bear more spiritual fruit than any, than any other Indian in history. Of course, she didn't realize what was happening at the time, nor could she imagine how her family's investment would pay off as God anointed Bach Singe and used him so mightily. But what a wonderful testimony, wonder, a wonderful model for us. By faithfully doing something small and doing it well, John and Edith Hayward did something big. By investing in just one, they blessed many and helped change the spiritual destiny of millions. So I, <clears throat> I love the story of God moving in her in a lot of ways. She probably felt like she never lived her dream. Um, but just the idea of investing, investing one person at a time, um, is how the gospel is spread and how we grow. And Juan, thank you for your devotional this morning. In a lot of ways, Juan um, summarized the whole discipleship series that we're talking about, knowing who you are and proclaiming it. Um, and so today, I want to attempt to wrap up the discipleship series. For those of you that haven't been here, um, and even if you have, just a quick reminder, we looked at what is a disciple, the cost of being a disciple, the disciplines of being a disciple, um, which, by the way, disciple and discipline have the same root word. Um, the heart of a disciple, we looked at the Great Commission, sharing and making disciples that way. We looked at investing in others, maturing disciples, and then today is more of an attempt to summarize what we talked about than it is a new um, topic. And as we dug into these, we realized that they're so big and deep, and how in the world do you talk about it? I'm going to try as, as best as I can to talk as just simple and basic as I possibly can today to summarize um, what we are trying to communicate, and I hope that by God's grace that happens. So when we talk about discipleship, what we really are saying is that it comes down to, it, to relationship, and obviously it starts with a relationship with God, and, and Juan pointed out that God literally calls us out of darkness, He redeems us, and then if you think about Jesus relating to His disciples, He didn't invite them into a class or a program, although he taught them a lot, he literally just invited them into his life, into a relationship. They walked a lot of places together. They um, were in boats together. They ate together. They literally just spent three years together. And as we think about being a disciple of Christ, um, I want that to be our focus. It is a relationship where we are just with him and learning from him. So discipleship is relationship. And then one of the primary ways that God disciples me and grows me is through other people. So the, the word is discipled, or this would be input into my life. And then, obviously, any time that, that God pours into our life, that is meant to, to be shared and to be passed on to other people. Um, and that is the concept of discipling or outflow. And um, these things are all interrelated, um, but the main point that I really, I guess in summary, want to look at today is just discipleship is relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with His people, and a relationship that allows God to impact people through, um, through my life. So discipleship is relationship. And this, this little summary, I think, is God's design and God's expectation for all of His followers that we are being discipled and we are also discipling um, at the same time. 
Just want to go to Acts 2 real quick um, to look at the story of the early church. And, and this is kind of an overview of the concepts of discipleship being a relationship with God and with other people. And this is the story, just a few verses here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Wouldn't it have been fun to be a part of that and to see that happening firsthand? Um, so, I mean, we can just kind of imagine what it's like. They live in the city. They probably are in small houses. It says that they go and they gather daily somewhere in the temple or the temple yard. And um, it says what they devoted themselves to, to, the, to teaching, um, to input from God, growing in Him from His Word, um, to fellowship. Sounds a lot like relating to each other and relationships and the breaking of bread. And I, that may mean communion, but it also means probably just literally eating together. Um, and doing this, this was their life. And they did this day by day. And in the end, God was adding people um, day, day by day to their number. So it wasn't perfect. They, I mean, they faced persecution. There was an argument saying, well, hey, you're not taking care of people of this background. It wasn't perfect. But it was a relationship that God was using to reach many, many people. Um, so this is kind of just an overview of what, of what it looks like. One quote that I read that I think sums this up well the disciplines of discipleship are worship, community, and mission. Worship, community, and mission. So as a church, if we can worship the Lord in a community that loves Him and speaks into each other's lives, on a mission to share that, um, that I think that's God's heart for the church. All right, so I want to look just a little bit um, at the, the first uh, concept of being a relationship to God and then when it comes to being discipled and discipling, these things are so interwoven, it's hard to separate them out clearly. So we're going to look at the concept of God relating to us and then the other two somewhat at the same time. If you would, flip to Ephesians 5, and I want to read uh, verses 22 um, through the end of the chapter. And so this is, the verses here are talking about husbands and wives, the, the closest relationship that, that exists. And God is saying that that relationship is a picture of Christ and the church. And so as you read these verses, I know it's addressing husbands and wives, but think through the lens of, of what it means for God to relate to us and us to relate back to God in a, in a relationship. Wives, submit to your, husband, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now he, um, now he addresses the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, 
because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I want to just look at what does God say about how he relates to the church, and how does the church relate back, back to God. So I just, um, just looked at this passage, and I made two columns here. How does Christ relate to his church? And um, yes, as I was reading it, I noticed that wives get three verses and us husbands get nine. But that's really not the point of what we're talking about. Just looking at how Christ relates to us, he's the head of the church. When we're talking about being disciples, he's head of the church. It's his body. He's the Savior. He gave himself up for her. He is sanctifying her, cleansing by the washing of the water and the word. And then he's going to present the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and to make the church holy and blameless. And this is, some of this is past tense. This is very present tense. He nourishes and cherishes and loves. So can we, can we put ourselves into this, that this is how God relates to us, both personally and as a body? This is what he does. Then if you look over here at the wives' side, basically comes down to two things, to submit and to respect. And so when we think about a discipling relationship with the Lord Jesus, am I willing to submit and respect and, and really follow? And then Christ promises to do, to do all of this in our lives and in our church. It's interesting that he uses the most, again, the most intimate relationship there is and says the church is what I'm going to point back to or the church is what um, shows how that relationship should be. So God draws us into a very intimate and close relationship with him. Another verse that I thought of in relation to God discipling us and us being a disciple of Christ is in Hebrews 10 where it talks about, just, let me just read all four of these verses. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the last verse is what I, I just want us to get a hold of, is that he has, says that he has actually perfected for all times. We are in right standing with God those who are actually being sanctified. And so when we, when we follow Christ as a disciple, we're already perfected. We already stand in complete holiness before him, but he's, he's working sanctification out in our life. Um, and so that, this has to be our basis of following Christ is, um, again, what Juan had mentioned, know who we are. We're perfect in Christ. But there are things that have to be sanctified every day. And Christ wants to lead us in that and, and to present us um, faultless. All right, another verse, a couple of verses related to um, discipleship, being relationship, and what does it look like to walk with the Lord? In Luke 6, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So obviously, if we're going to follow someone, they need to know where they're going and to be able to see where they're going. But then in verse 40, he says that we're not above our teacher, 
when we're fully trained, we're going to be like him. And I find a lot of hope and promise in this. Um, And the New Testament talks about this in many places. But when we are fully trained, we will be like Christ. And it's a promise that he'll do that for us. Um, A disciple is not above his teacher. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Um, One little just example of, of how this works, and this is not a spiritual example, but our boys are doing upwards basketball. And it's just a little short season. They get to play basketball for eight weeks. And it's amazing what all changes in eight weeks' time when they come and they have a coach. And the first week, um, well, it may or may not go all that well. But then they go to practice, and the coach is like, you know, I saw you do this, but I really need you to work on this this week. And over time, things just really change to where the team at the first week, compared to how the team plays at the end, is worlds apart. And they start playing a lot like their coach wants them to play. And so that's just one example of one little area of life that, that God says, whoever we follow, when we're done being trained, we will be like them. And so I guess who are we following? We want to follow Christ in every way. And he promises when he's done, we're going to be like him. We'll be trained and be like his teacher. Um, I don't want to get too mired down in details, but sometimes when I look at a verse, I like to look up the word to just see, am I understanding what it's saying? And the word I love, well, it's translated here as fully trained, and there's actually a lot of parts to that. But it basically means three things. The first thing it means is to, um, sorry, I got ahead of myself here, to mend what is broken and to restore, to mend what is broken. And so when we come to Christ and we want to be his disciple, one, the first thing he does, he has to mend what's broken, whether that's sin or hurts or just our own way of living. God mends what's broken. Um, the second thing that it means is that it to fit or equip. And so when we follow Christ, he equips us literally for every good work. And then the third thing that means is it's talking about our character, that we will be completely and thoroughly, um, our character will be remade. I just think that's such a picture of what it means to walk with Christ, to mend what's broken, equip us, and change us thoroughly on the inside. Um, so the question for me is, am I allowing God to fully train me, to completely train me? All right, so that's a little bit of looking at, at God um, relating to him and, and our relationship and how he, how he changes us. One of the things that I find in my life is a lot of what God uses to change me is often through other people, that God works through other people um, to just shape and mold my life. Um, and then also the, the aspect of that flowing out. So I want to look a little bit at, um, at just how God uses people and that it does come down to relationships. So if, I'm not going to do it this morning, but let's just say that we were new believers and we had not read the New Testament. And today for the first time, we were going to flip open the Bible to the book of Ephesians and read about God's plan for the church and my life. And I think we would go through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and just that God has literally blessed me and you in Christ with every blessing, every blessing possible. And you'd get to chapter 2 and God is talking about he's building his church. And it is a, it's literally a building that he's building so that his presence can live there. And we'd flip on to chapter 3 and, chapter, and get to chapter 4 and he says that literally that he equips people in the church to equip other people 
so that every part of the body can grow and just mature. And we'd flip over to chapter 5, and this relationship changes every part of our life. And we learn in chapter 6 that we're at war, but that God is victorious. And so I guess what I'm, what I'm asking today, I'm not necessarily going to look at lots of Scripture in this, but just will we take God just literally at His word that when it comes to other people, that God gifts other people to speak into my life. And God literally gifts them with what I need. And when it talks about spiritual gifts, it's, it's God's grace in their life. And so often the way that comes into my life is by the people God surrounds me and the grace he puts in their heart. And am I willing to look at other people that way? That God literally equips the believers around me to speak into my life and to disciple me. Um, one verse kind of along this line is in, in Romans 15, where Paul is writing to the church there. He's saying he wants God to fill them with hope. And then he makes this statement about them. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Look at what he says about the church that Christ has built up. Um, that we are in Christ, we're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And so as I think about being a disciple of Christ, am I willing to look at my brothers and sisters that they are people that God has filled with knowledge and has equipped to instruct me, and that I need to hear, uh, need to hear what they have to say? So God has gifted people to speak into my life, and if that's true, God has also gifted you to speak into other people's lives. I want to look um, just at Luke 6 where we lifted out the two verses and just look at the context of that a little bit and just thinking about how God works in our lives through relationship both in and the outflow of that. So here's, here's where I lifted those two verses out of context. We're going to jump back in and see what he's saying. Luke 6, verse 37, and this is the Sermon on the Mount as, as Luke records it. Judge not... And you, will be, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And I had to think of, of the poem that you had shared. Um, we receive from Christ so much that it flows over. And, and it's in this context, is talking about are we willing to forgive other people and to pass that on so freely and then it, it somehow it, it spills over? Um, so he tells us not to judge and to not condemn. And, and just to be clear, that's very true. We're not to have a, a judgmental attitude where we label somebody or, or just to look down on somebody. But please don't hear this as saying that we're not supposed to discern. And you'll see that very clearly in the rest of this passage, that we are to discern very accurately, but we are not to judge. So there's a, there's a big difference, but in today's world, um, this concept is kind of, is built out into something that it's not meant to be. All right, so that's the first part. And then the verses that I read, that a disciple will not be above his teacher, and this is what he goes on to say. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. 
And the word picture um, is actually quite funny. And, you know, imagine somebody with a big board, a log sticking out of their eye, coming up just trying to help somebody get a speck out of their eye. Obviously, you're just going to create all kinds of damage with the log that's sticking out of your eye. Um, and so he's saying that, you know, it's so easy to look around and to see other people, but at the heart of being a disciple is allowing God to deal with me first and then to, deal, um, to just, in love, look out for my brother and sister. And so it comes back to what God does in me to begin with and then caring enough to come and to take the speck out of an eye. And I find it interesting that he uses um, this exact analogy of a, of a piece of dirt in your eye and we all know what that feels like, right? It, it hurts, and you know that it's there. Um, and it actually blocks your vision, but you can't see to get it out yourself. You know that it's there, and it's a problem. And so you're, you know, one of the first things you have to do is go up to a mirror or have somebody come and help. And does anybody else have a hard time allowing someone else to touch your eye? It is so hard, and in fact, you have to hold your eye open because it goes against every instinct to let somebody else reach in there. And I wonder if that is part of the picture of what discipleship is like. It's not natural, and I don't really want to do it, and I have to hold my eye open because I know that it's good for me, but God sends people to, to help me out and to take the speck out of our eye. Um, and so it, it takes an openness and a trust um, to allow someone to help, to help you out and, and to show what's in your life. So discipleship, um, it just takes humility on all levels, both if you're relating to other people and, when, and if they're relating to you. So this passage talks about correction. I want to be very clear, discipleship is not only correction. There is a lot more to it. I want to just point out a few, a few verses yet um, here about, um, that, that talk about this. In John 13, um, and Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, he's going He's about to be crucified, and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when I think about being discipled and, and also discipling other people, it does um, come back to loving people. And Nate had talked about that when he talked about investing in, in others. But God asks us to love other people just like he loves us. And for some reason, it just grabs me that Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet. Disciples that had just, they had let him down, they had betrayed him, and he washed their feet, and he walks out, and he says, you know what, if you follow me, I want you to love other people the exact same way that I love you. And I'm not there a lot of the times, and it takes... That's why I say it takes God just literally pouring himself into our heart, and then we can pour out into other people's heart um, to love people this way. Titus 2 talks about other, um, other discipleship that happens, and I'm not going to read all of this, um, but it talks about the older women, that they are to teach and to train the younger women, that there is to be a, a teaching and a training. Um, and one thing just to be clear on is it talks about older and younger. It doesn't say old and young. And so as we read these things, we're always older than or ahead of someone. And, and God's design is that 
those who are ahead take time to train and teach those who are behind. And so I just want to encourage us in that. Yes, this passage is clearly for the ladies, but I think it's a, it, the principle applies to all of us of being willing to teach and being willing to train. Second Timothy talks about, um, talks about for the men. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. And just when we walk with God, he pours into our life and we are to pass that on, just continually to, to receive from God and to pass that on. You know, as I think about this, the series and discipleship, it's an awful, it, it's just a lot like a family, isn't it? You know, when, when a baby is born, a baby is placed into a family, and people are there to take care of this, of this child, and the child literally just can't do much for itself. But as the child grows, then the expectation is that it, that the child starts um, being a part of the family and having responsibilities and, and eventually serving other people in the family. And God puts families together to take care of each other. And eventually a child grows to where the point a child can leave and take care of other people. And I just I see that as a picture of what God does in the life of a believer. He puts us in a hopefully a loving and a caring community where we can grow and receive and start passing on. Um, in, in ways to other people. So as I look at the idea of being discipled by other people, I have to ask, what is my attitude towards input from other people? How much input am I currently getting from other people? How intentional am I being about getting input? And I will say, this is hard for me. Um, one of the things that I finally, finally did this week, I've felt for a long time, just the need to have input from somebody that is ahead of me in life to just be able to speak into my life of, of things that I've been dealing with and knew that I should. And you know what? Just It's, re, it's easy to come up with nine reasons why it can't happen. Um, but thankfully, I was able to reach out for someone um, this week and spend a few hours and just so grateful for what he was able to pour into my life. And just, um, yeah, just very blessed by intentionally opening up and asking him to do that. All that I'm saying is that I know what it feels like to know that you should, but not get it done. And so if you feel the need to have someone speak in your life, I would just encourage you to do it, that God has people around you and they are avenues of God's grace and can help disciple you. Um, how, do you how do you start? And again, here's where I don't want us to get lost. We hear discipleship and let's, it's just relationship. And it's just openness and spending time together. So I would encourage you, um, just ask somebody to meet for a certain time. Or you can meet about a certain topic. Or it doesn't even have to be big and ongoing. Just ask for input. You know what? I saw this in your life, and I would like you to just share with me like, what God is doing and how you arrived there. And just see what God does with that. As I think about discipleship, um, at least if you're anything like me, when it comes to other people speaking into my life or me speaking to other people's life, I just kind of want it to happen just, just spontaneously and just naturally and just where it just, it just happens and it continues to happen. And that does happen, but I also I think about marriage a little bit. Sometimes we want marriage to be that way, and a lot of it is. But then in a marriage, you also have to set aside time to go on dates. 
and to intentionally connect. And I would say discipleship is the same way. There's a lot that can just happen, but there's a lot that we have to actually go after and just ask for input. Um, one of the concepts that has been helpful for me is one of the thing, one of the marks of maturity is knowing that we have a need and asking for help with it. Sometimes we can feel like maturity is not having the need to start with, but maturity is actually asking, asking for help. So, and then the concept of, of investing in others, um, let's just look for ways to invest in relationships and just ask God. It does not have to be big. It can be, there's hundreds and thousands of ways to do this. Let's look for opportunity. But the one thing about investing in others is that you have to be transparent. It doesn't happen if, we, if we're closed. And so some of this is, is the hard process of, of opening my life up to another person if we're going to, to speak into somebody's life. And um, it's an openness. It's an openness opening my heart. It's opening my time. It's opening my calendar. It's opening my home. Um, and just, you know, my time is not my own, but it is, it's invested in other people. And that is one of the things that I'm, I'm thankful for is just um, you know, thinking back about you know, how mom and dad lived their life or Pete and Vi um, or Dan and Emma, you know, where I grew up. People living with us and around us was just was very natural. Um, and so thank you all for that, modeling that of just opening up your life. I think that's how, that's how discipleship happens. Nicole and I got the privilege of spending about a week in San Francisco um, about a year, a year and a few months ago, um, with an organization called We Are Church, and it's the churches that um, Francis Chan has started, and they invited people in for a week. They have pastors that come in, um, and they just share. And one of, the, one of the huge just challenges or convictions that I took away from there is just how that we can make discipleship out to be all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, it is, it's just relationship, and it is just literally opening up our heart and we can't give what we don't have. And we just, we have to have Christ pouring into us. And then it is just a, it's, discipleship, one of the things they kept saying is discipleship is life on life. It's not so much a class. It's not so much teaching. It's just, it's literally just life on life. And that's how, um, that's how lives are changed. So as I, as I think about, um, you know, what we've looked at as a church, I hope Hope you hear me saying it is relationship with God and relationship with other people um, and just a willingness to be open. So one um, very simple way of illustrating this as I, as I think about discipleship, it is, um, it is first of all, it, is, it has to be God just pouring into my life and, and that I'm following him and submitted to him, that God, he is the one that is, is saying what needs to change and he is the one that is putting into my life. And and that is what it looks like to be a disciple, just to allow him to pour into my life. But I also have to recognize that one of the primary things that God does is he pours into other people's lives things that I need. And he will, that is one, one of the big ways that he works in me. And yes, most of the time, at least in my life, it is people that are very different than me that God pours into their life and then wants to pour into my life. And so as we think about being discipled, we just want to be open to whatever God has and open to what other people that God wants to use to pour, to pour into our life. But it is not a, 
it doesn't just stop there. God always, when God blesses us, he asks us to pour out. And, and things that pour into our life are meant to be poured out into other lives. And so there is a continual, um, just a continual flow of God pouring into my life that's often through other people. And what God ends up with in my life hopefully will impact other people. And when we think about discipleship, um, when, I, when I'm encouraging you to disciple other people, probably everybody here is thinking, I, I'm not really ready for that I, I, in some ways, right? Anybody else relate to that? And I think so often we look, we look at ourselves, and, and I heard this explained once as a way, it's not original with me. When we disciple other people, it is not saying that our cup is completely filled up and we are everything we are supposed to be. It is just literally saying that, you know what, if there's anything in my life that is of value to you, I will pass it on. And so often we get stuck in, you know, am I really ready or do I have enough? And it's just, it's just an openness um, to allow, allow God to use whatever he has poured into that cup. So as I, as I think about this, am I just open to the Lord and to other people, um, to what he's doing? To wrap up, I ask that you take out your, if you have a bulletin, if you would take out the bulletin and, uh, or a piece of paper. And I would, I would like you just to think about something and give you a little bit of time here. And um, just ask God to speak into your heart. And if you would be honest, just to assess where you are on a number of things here. So the first thing I want to look at is just where are we at in, our, in an openness to God and God discipling us. And you can just, however you want to do this in your notes, if you write God or um, relating to your teacher or your master, write that right in the middle of the page. And on the left side, put a 1. And on the right side, put a 10. And just think about where, where are you at in allowing God to disciple you. A couple of lines down, if you would write the word discipled, what people are speaking into your life, where do you find yourself? How open to other people's input are you? Are you getting the input that you need? And just put a, so on the 10, between the 1 and the 10, just put an X somewhere where you think you are um, left to right. And then under discipling, how intentionally are you investing in the lives of others 